Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and I'm delighted to host the Emerge Australia Imagine podcast series in which we speak to people impacted and associated by MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and those listening today. So at a time where we have so much unrest across the world, reflecting on John Lennon's iconic song, Imagine, is very appropriate. Let's imagine a world where there are no wars. That would be pretty good right now where there is no discrimination or stigma, no racism, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, seen and addressed, a world where there is a cure for MECFS or at the very least a biomarker or diagnostic test, let alone updated clinical guidelines. Imagine all the people So today, I'm delighted to welcome Zoe Simmons to our podcast series, Zoe Writes to Make a Difference. As an award-winning journalist, copywriter, author and speaker who's been published hundreds of times around the globe, Zoe uses the raw power of storytelling to capture hearts and minds. A fierce advocate for disability, mental illness and chronic illness, Zoe speaks candidly about her experiences with fibromyalgia, undiagnosed adenomyosis, bipolar, anxiety and autism. Through her work, she aims to smash stigma, I love that word, smash stigma, create change and show others they're not alone. Having been published in six books, including a section on ethical journalism in Kathy Devine's Golden Age Politics, five poems on chronic pain, mental health, disability and queerness in three Beyond the Whale Press mental health anthologies and a chapter on how journalism helped her community in the pushfires in Occupational Therapy Australia's Doing Our Best, Zoe is currently writing her first book, about being a disabled journalist and her community's struggle for survival in the 2019-2020 Black Summer bushfires. Zoe works as a lived experience advisor with the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. She's on the Community Advisory Committee with Eastern Health, where she ensures disabled perspectives are conveyed to senior leadership And she's just been appointed to the Social Inclusion Working Group as part of the National Autism Strategy. 
Zoe's a highly regarded speaker, has spoken at the National Young Writers Festival in 21, 22, and a 22 Headspace panel allyship, a 2023 Greens panel with Senator Jordan Steele-John about the NDIS, and was a keynote speaker at this year's National Youth Disability Summit with Children and Young People with Disability Australia. Wow. Zoe Simmons, welcome to our podcast. What a CV. <laughs> oh, uh, well, thank you. Thank you much so much for having me. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Um, what a warm welcome. Oh, what a CV you've got. I can't believe it. So I look at your CV, I read it, and, and I read about all your many awards. Can you tell me a bit about your awards and give our listeners an insight into the impact that you're actually having as a leader in our community? Uh, sure. I mean, it's a bit mind-blowing for me to think that I am, you know, an award-winning person and run a business and speak and do keynote things and have, like, advocated on TV. And, um, you know, I feel like I'm just doing the best I can to share my lived experience and make a difference however I can. And that's often awkward and uncomfortable and anxiety-inducing and it makes me want to vomit a lot but um you know I just do what I can and that seems to be really resonating with people both in and outside the disabled community so I am so honored um in terms of my awards gosh trying to remember um not that there are so many but just that I have brain fog and memory issues as part of my disabilities um but I've won various um young female entrepreneur of the year awards um women in media awards um diversity and inclusion awards for various places um it's it's a bit mind-blowing <laughs> but i want to create change i don't believe that we can't create change and you know one person can make a difference and it's a ripple effect um i've had people tell me that my work has helps them feel like they can share their story or that they're allowed to use mobility aids or that they are allowed to identify as disabled and ask for their access needs to be met or that my articles are the reason they figured out they're autistic. Um, you know, just knowing that my work can help people live better and then also have that contribute to service improvement and better accessibility in the community and healthcare and the workplace, it, it means a lot to me. Yeah, that's amazing. So I recall meeting you at um, the launch of the Parliamentary Friends Group at Parliament House in Canberra in June this year, um, and I recall you had to work so very, very hard to get your walker, was it, um, through the lush carpet at Parliament House and, and Senator Jordan Steele-John had to work so very hard um, to get his wheelchair through the lush carpet by the time you got there, you were totally exhausted and we hadn't even started the launch. You know, do those kind of things, they must frustrate you. And what kind of messages do you have for for people um, and uh, people who put such wonderful carpets and decor into such magnificent buildings and yet they're really not very suitable for someone with a wheelchair or a walker, are they? Not at all. They are absolutely gorgeous buildings. However, these buildings have not been made with disability in mind. Uh, it's, you know, 
until recently, I don't think we've really seen all that many disabled people in the media and in parliament and traditionally, you know, disabled voices have not been heard. So we're only now just kind of seeing this and people that don't have disabilities and don't work with disabled people generally don't know about access needs and these little issues. You don't think about them because they don't affect you. So, for example, um, anyone that's wondering why carpet is so difficult, well, like imagine trying to push a suitcase through really long grass. Like it's difficult. It's already hard to wheel yourself, let alone having other issues and, um, you know, people don't consider other people's access needs. They just think that, you know, there's this norm and everyone should be able to do that norm. But the fact is many people could not. Um, one in five Australians are disabled. So that's a lot of people that can't do this norm and shouldn't have to do this norm because it's, you know, arbitrary. Why? When, you know, there's so much diversity in the human condition and, accessibility benefits everybody and sooner or later you it's likely that you will become disabled either by you know a, a developing a condition um being in an accident or age sooner or later these access needs will be important for you too but we don't think about those things because disabled people and you know people that can't do what society says you should be able to do aren't thought about yeah, and how much more difficult, uh, Zoe, is it for people who've got invisible disabilities? So, you know, someone is in a wheelchair and people go, oh, that person must be disabled. But, for example, people with ME-CFS, fibromyalgia, people who have mental health issues, um, and, you know, the list goes on and on, and I'm sure you can talk about that list better than I can. But those are disabilities that are invisible, they're unseen, and um, often those people are also unheard. You know, what do you say uh, about the challenges that people with invisible disabilities face? I mean, there are both privileges and challenges with having invisible disabilities. You do often get less stigma because you don't look disabled, whereas people that might have a visible disability will be treated differently because of that. But um, on the other hand, when your disability is invisible, you often aren't believed. It's very stigmatized. It's drowning in ableism. Um, because you know people that are saying oh it can't be that bad clearly have never experienced it whether it comes to mental illness or chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or any other disability or condition you know people just tend to be really dismissive and that's incredibly harmful because it causes us to push through it causes us to hurt ourselves as a result of pushing through it causes us to think we are not good enough if we can't push through and you know we shouldn't have to push through we should just be and be able to look after ourselves and have that not be a bad thing but of course our society is very much dependent on our productivity in terms of our value and how society sees us and that gets internalized you feel like if, oh i can't do this oh i should be able to do this and then you beat yourself up because you can't do something and then on top of that and your own internalized ableism you've also got other people saying often some pretty awful things including you know family and friends and the medical system and you know then you see all these stories in the media and it makes you feel like you're just not enough 
And that's also funny when you feel like you're not disabled enough to say use mobility aid, but you're not, you know, you can't do things that other people can do that they take for granted. Yeah. So you touched upon our health system. I think you called it our medical system. Do you want to expand on the shortcomings there? How long do we have? (laughs) Um, Well, there are a lot of issues in our healthcare system, so many, and so many that I don't even understand, but it seems mainly marginalized communities, so LGBTQI plus community, people of color, as well as disabled people. It's so much harder to access and it's so much harder to be believed and cared for, um, especially when you have an invisible disability um, and especially if you have a uterus. So I tried to get help for so long and I had so many doctors just ignoring me. I remember I've, I've just had chronic pain symptoms since my first period and I was always just dismissed. I was told, oh, it can't be that bad. Just have a Panadol. And then I, a couple of years ago, I think maybe five or six years ago now, I broke my wrist and then I realized my pain in my body, my abdominal pain, I mean, was worse than a broken bone. I was like, ha, I know that's not normal, despite what they've been telling me is normal. Um, And I went to see so many doctors and people to try and get help. And they were so dismissive and horrible and genuinely harmful. I went to a female doctor first thinking, oh, she might help me because, you know, she probably has a uterus. Um, But she was awful. She spoke to me for maybe five minutes, asked me what my symptoms were, and then said it was dairy. And I was like, oh, no, it can't be dairy. Um, She was like, no, it's dairy. I was like, I'm vegan. It can't be dairy. And then she was like, oh, well, it must be your weight. Like, no tests, no nothing. Just, oh, exercise. But, you know, that's a pretty common experience for so many people. And I spent my life savings over the past five years trying to get answers and trying to be helped. And the amount of doctors and specialists that have actually helped is minuscule compared to the amount I've seen. And that's really disheartening. And, you know, it makes you feel like you're the problem when you know your body and you know when something isn't right but when you have doctors telling you oh it's fine or oh we can't find anything or we don't know why it's a very traumatizing thing and it makes you doubt yourself and it has a huge impact especially while you're living with whatever symptoms you're facing so for me that was a lot of pain that was a lot of fatigue and not just being a little bit tired i mean imagining that you haven't slept in five days and you have to read a law textbook with no coffee or something like that's probably not even a good enough explanation of how exhausted you get you can't think you can't function you can't communicate and people just don't get how bad that is and doctors don't get how bad that is because the medical system in itself is ableist like think of how many uh you know placements and rough hours and conditions that doctors and nurses and medical professionals have to go through like that's exhausting so of course they're not going to believe us when we say we've got issues because they're like oh it can't be that bad but they don't see us when we're at our worst they see us when we're you know in their appointments or on their telehealth screens and for that little bit we're trying to advocate as hard as we can to be believed but um i think also when you're autistic you don't represent how they think you should be and you know not even just being autistic but you know, you're trying to talk to a doctor, trying to get them to believe you. And because you might be able to articulate in that moment, they don't believe that it can't be that bad. Um, and that's, 
it's really awful because they don't see you when you can't move, when you haven't been able to eat, when you haven't been able to wash, when you don't have clean clothes, when you can't live. They don't see how bad it gets yeah. and they just dismiss it. So, I mean, that's just so powerful, Zoe. Um, I believe that everyone listening to this uh, podcast session, whether they've got MECFS, which of course is what Emerge Australia is all about, um, or not, will relate to the comments you make about, you know, you try very, very hard when you go to the doctor to convey what you're feeling and what you're going through. But in that moment when you're trying, it masks how you really feel when you're not there. It's like the harder you try, the less you're seen. And um, I think everybody's going to relate to that. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. So just on building on that, would you care to take us through the many complex health challenges that you face, including, I believe, your, your diagnosis of fibromyalgia, but also um, the challenge of obtaining an MECFS diagnosis? It's really hard to get a diagnosis and it's really hard to be believed and it's also exhausting to constantly battle the medical system and insist to doctors that tell you there's nothing wrong, saying, no, there is something wrong. But, you know, there's such a lack of information for so many conditions, for MECFS, for fibro, for endometriosis, for adenomyosis, for mental illness, for autism. There's all these perceptions that just don't match up and it's incredibly difficult to convince a doctor to help you and it's so exhausting going to all these medical appointments and you know that might not sound exhausting if you don't have MECFS or any kind of chronic fatigue uh, symptoms but it's it's hard you know people don't think how much energy it costs to constantly advocate yourself and you know going to multiple doctor's appointments a week and it's even worse if you have to go in person to them um you know, I vividly remember I went to a fibromyalgia clinic once to get help and there was no parking. Uh, so I had to park about a kilometer away. Um, I had my wheelchair, but of course I couldn't push myself up a hill. So I had to walk my wheelchair. And by the time I got to the entrance, I was crying. I was in so much pain. I was struggling to breathe. And I, I was, you know, that worked up that the staff asked me if I needed to go to the emergency room. And I was like, no, I just need to find out where my appointment is. Um, and the kicker was that that appointment didn't do anything. It didn't help. And no one seemed to recognize how much of an impact that had on me. And it's really disheartening. They don't seem to get it. Um, thankfully, telehealth is more common now, but you know, there's still the risk that it'll be taken away and it is being limited by a lot of places. It's really difficult. And especially on top of all this, you still have to live. So you still have like all the admin tasks that come with life. You still have to buy food. You still have to make food. You still have to have an income of some sort. And all these things take so much energy and you just have none. 
So what do you choose to do when you have no energy? Do you choose to fight the medical system or do you choose to eat? <laughs> like, and what do you, or, choose? you know, and it's even worse if you have caring responsibilities. Yeah. And so oh, um, what do you choose? What do you choose to do? I honestly put my work before anything else, um, which is probably bad because it does have an impact on me. I do need to look after myself more, but I feel like our voices often aren't heard. So I have, you know, a growing platform and opportunities to make a difference, to write about these things, to speak about these things when a lot of people don't. So I feel like it's my duty to try and make a difference. My whole goal in life is to know that someone else has breathed easier because I have existed. And, you know, if I can create some real change, some real lasting change so that people don't have to go through this in the future. So it's easier. So there's more options, there's more research than I've succeeded. However, unfortunately, that means pretty much everything else in my life I don't do. Um, but I thankfully am now on the NDIS and without support workers, I don't have food, clean clothes, a clean house. It, you know, I could do a load of washing once every four months or so, which I know is gross, but what can you do when you can't do it and you don't have support systems? Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced in getting onto the NDIS? Oh gosh, uh, it's not a very accessible system. <laughs> it's so exhausting. It took me years and it cost me my life savings to try and get evidence because it's so hard to get a diagnosis. It's, you know, I haven't been able to get one for MBCFS despite the fact that I have all the symptoms, including post-exertional malaise and, you know, having, you know, worked with Emerge and one of your, um, nurses i think you know spokesman's like yeah that sounds like macfs but you still can't get help on top of it being a really exhausting difficult to access system um they don't often believe you even if you have all this evidence like i have official diagnoses and i have about 12 years of evidence for my mental illnesses for example and they didn't recognize that they don't recognize any of my physical disabilities which is what I need most help for. Um, and I'm so grateful that I've been accepted on the basis of my autism, but it still really upsets me how many people cannot get help and how many people can't even apply in the first place. It's, you know, such a deficit-based system and it's really confronting to see yourself written about like that. And I think, you know, if the people that are making these decisions in the NDIS actually lived with these conditions that we're applying for, they would be like, ha, ah, no, you need some help because it's very hard. What would you say to people, um, let's say an NDIS assessor, who would say to you if you've got MECFS and you're largely housebound that you're not eligible on the grounds of not being disabled? It's hard. I mean, I am mostly housebound. If I'm outside, it's generally with my electric wheelchair. I can't use a manual as much anymore because it's exhausting, but they just don't understand how much of an impact it has. And conditions like MECFS and fibromyalgia and anything else like that often aren't accepted, like mine weren't. And 
it's so hard and even just getting a diagnosis is such a battle and so many people can't get that because money cost energy availability of medical care i just wish the people making decisions in the ndis would take the time to listen to our lived experience that we deserve to be able to live like anyone else we're not trying to scam the system we're trying to live so do you think Australia is any closer to improving outcomes for people with MECFS in 2023? Honestly, I want to hope and say yes. Um, you know, things this year like the parliamentary friends with MECFS, that's really great to know that we have some politicians like Jordan fighting with us. But I think probably most of you know, the political sphere and the medical system just doesn't listen and just doesn't care because it doesn't affect them and they dismiss it. Um, you know, there is a lot of great research happening, but that research isn't going to GPs. It isn't going to specialists. And I work in the healthcare system and I receive a lot of care in the healthcare system. And I feel like a broken record how much I've spoken about MECFS and, you know, the dangers of graded exercise therapy and you know, the ableism and stigma and all that. And I don't feel like I'm listened to. I do hope the more that we can talk about it and the more people that listen, the better it will get. I do think it will get better, but it's, it's a long road. And Australia is behind that we can't do something as simple as changing the guidelines so that graded exercise therapy isn't recommended. That's such a simple thing. And there's so much research backing that and yet nothing. So I don't know what we have to do to make them listen, but I hope they do. Well, we hope they do as well. So um, a loaded question for you. Um, what would you do if you were a prime minister for the day? Ooh, um, <laughs> probably a lot. I would absolutely make sure disabled perspectives and people of color and LGBTQIA plus perspectives and rights are protected. So people can't just take away, you know, the right to abortion or the right to be who you are or to transition or, you know, to be a gender diverse person and be able to publicly be seen like what we're seeing in America and other places in the world. I would make sure that's protected. <laughs> I would, uh, I mean, I don't know anything about how much funding the government gets, but I would make sure at least there's, you know, more going to the people that need it, that we're not wasting money on things that don't, in my opinion, really matter. Uh, I think it's pretty insulting when the benefits the politicians get, you know, just being able to like, oh, what they can, uh, expenses in terms of like, you know, accommodation and travel, and there are people that can't afford to eat. It just seems really messed up to me and I, I definitely think, you know, there needs to be so much change when it comes to like the Disability Royal Commission, so much change when it comes to funding, so much change when it comes to these advisory guidelines and also the messaging about disabled people in general. Like it's often, uh, oh, budget blowout, but, you know, they don't look at what benefits disabled people bring to the community and that, you know, hey, we still have lives and we still deserve to be treated like humans and be able to live 
not to mention the fact that a lot of the issues are people, not the disabled people themselves doing the wrong thing, but service providers overcharging and fraud and also the cost of lawyers and all that to prevent people from accessing or improving their care on the NDIS, for example. It's just a bit ridiculous. Um, gosh, there is so much I would do. I don't think I could fit it into even one whole podcast, but um, I do sometimes get tempted to go into politics, but I don't think I do well. <gasps> Why not? Oh, I'm just not your typical politician. Like I have pink hair, piercings, tattoos, um, you know, I'm disabled, I'm queer. <laughs> a lot of things that a lot of people in those conservative areas probably hate. Um, but that's probably what we need, disruption and differences. They should be celebrated, not demonized. So we'd like to think and that- also probably just be a bit oh. blunt. Well, you know. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say also, I'd probably be a bit blunt. <laughs> yeah, well, um, why not? You get your point across very clearly and very eloquently. So we'd like to think that lived experience brings with it wisdom. Um, what have you learned in your journey that could bring some light and hope to those who are living with MECFS in Australia today? Gosh, I mean, firstly, I'd like to say I know it's hard and you are doing such a good job. Like you don't have to do or be anything. Just existing is so difficult so good job but I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to walk or roll <laughs> if you're in a wheelchair your own path and that you don't have to fit into the side inside these non-disabled boxes you don't have to do the things they tell you to in the way they tell you to um you know one example for that is you know we're told we have to go work in a job nine till five and go there in person but that just doesn't work for everyone for so many reasons like I am way too tired to commute to a location so and work full-time so I, I started my own business my copywriting and my editing my speaking my advocacy so I could look after myself and it's scary to forge that path and not really have a safety net but I think you can do it and I think you can make a difference by sharing your story um I also think that we need to rest way more. Um, if you feel your body screaming at you, today is not the day to push through. Like sometimes you do have to with some things because it's just life, unfortunately, but rest and look after yourself first and look at ableism and stigma and in your own life and the people around you. And if they aren't supportive and they're making it worse, if they're saying like, oh, it can't be that bad or, oh, you don't need that wheelchair or, oh, just push through. You know, if they can't understand what you're actually going through, their opinions don't really matter. And it's really hard when people in your life are like that, but sometimes you just have to cut them off and put yourself first. It's so important to put yourself first. And I think, especially if you have a uterus, society often tells you to put everyone else first. And when you're a caring person, you often do want to put other people before you because you like to look after people and make sure things are good for other people but you have to help yourself before you can help anyone else and if you can't help anyone else that's okay you are the priority and you know you just have to find those little moments 
that spark joy in life and follow them and set boundaries and look at the things in your life that are draining you and how you can change it. Um, you know, some things are easier said than done. Um, but you know, you deserve better and you deserve to live how you need to, but also I think accepting disability that is really difficult in a world that tells us disability is a bad thing and that, you know, Oh, don't call yourself that. Um, but for me, it's actually been really, really empowering to understand that I am disabled, that no, that's not a bad thing. Um, of course it has its challenges. I have grief. I have anger. I have sadness. I often wish that I was in a body that functioned. I imagine what I could do if, if only, you know, but you can't, change that you have to accept it and I find accepting and you know not beating myself up for not being well has really helped and also things like um, using mobility aids a wheelchair a walking stick a walker I used to have this perception that I think a lot of people probably do that you know oh I'm not disabled enough or whatever yes you are if you are looking at a mobility aid and are thinking that would help please use it. You are allowed to. No one is going to yell at you. Actually, ableist people might, but they're jerks and their opinions don't matter. Um, but, you know, you're allowed to do the things that make life easier for you. If you need to work from home, if you need to buy pre-cut vegetables or something, if using a wheelchair to conserve your energy helps or a scooter or parking closer or saying no to things helps please do those things. Please listen to your body because you can't get better fighting it. You know, you have to love it. You have to love yourself, which is very hard when you can't do the things you want to. And it's very, very hard when you're autistic and, you know, the world tells you that how you are and think and experience the world is wrong. And it's extra hard when you have a mental illness and complex mental illness on the top of that. There's all these negative things in the world and in your own mind telling you not to do something or that you're not allowed to rest, but that's just ridiculous. You really have to challenge that stigma and challenge that ableism. Like, hey, no, I'm allowed to just be. On that note, Zoe, um, you're amazing. Um, you're amazing in in your your ability to articulate exactly how you feel, exactly how you think, and to inspire others uh, probably to do some of the things that they think about and maybe don't have the courage to do, but you have and you're pushing those boundaries for people with disability across Australia all the time. So first of all, I want to say thank you uh, so much for your time, for, for your, your willingness to be so frank uh, about your own personal experiences and for the encouragement and hope that uh, your your direction to people who are listening will give, you know, um, setting boundaries, being yourself, recognising that you are enough, uh, you know, uh, learning to accept uh, if you are disabled that you are and and being able to feel empowered through that process these are really uh, critical messages uh for our listeners and they certainly give me hope and i'm hoping that they do so for everyone who's listening in so zoe 
Thank you so much. And I also want to congratulate you on the fact that you've set up all these enterprises and businesses that keep you busy, that keep you focused. And and that focus is also bringing help to so many people. So for those of you who are listening, you can follow Zoe online on Facebook at Zoe Simmons Journalist. You can follow her on Twitter at It Begins With Z or Z. You can follow her on Instagram, on TikTok, and threads at something beginning with Z. Or check out her website on www.zoesimmons.com.au for further information. So, Zoe Simmons, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And to anyone that's a researcher or a politician or a policymaker, please listen to us. And anyone that's disabled or chronically ill, I just want to give you the biggest hug and tell you it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Well, we give you the biggest hug back. So uh, thanks again, Zoe. So the Emerge Australia podcast series seeks to speak with people of influence like Zoe and those whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. If the content of this or other Emerge Australia podcasts has triggered an emotional response for which you need assistance, feel free to contact Lifeline on 131114, their Crisis Support and Suicide Prevention Service. You may also go onto the Emerge Australia website where emergency services are listed. Tune in again for our next interview. Soon we'll be announcing an entire series of interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers in MECFS. So please stay tuned. And for all the information on the work of Emerge Australia and what we have lined up for you in the coming months, you can subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter and visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Zoe Simmons, thank you so much for your time and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join. And the world